Did everybody have a good Christmas and New Year's? Yay, all things considered. All right. Well, let's, let's pray. Well, God, thank you so much for being with us and for watching over us through the holiday. Thank you for the family times that were encouraging and, and supportive. Lord, there are people in our family that we do pray for. We pray that they would come to faith in Jesus, that they would have changed hearts and changed lives. And uh, so we do pray for them, but we are also very grateful for what you have blessed us with this past couple of weeks and be with us today. Lord, be with us as we go into Psalm 47 and, and um, I pray that when we walk away from Psalm 47, our hearts truly will be filled with gratitude and a celebration and thanksgiving for who you are and what you have done and are doing and will do for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I guess this was a subtle hint. I, I'm a guy, I don't take hints very well, but I'm guessing that's telling me that there's a newsletter out. Her Heritage newsletter is out somewhere. Another book, okay, on the Life Wall? No. Oh, in the Nardex. So there's copies of that. And these are really cool because they usually have cool pictures like those on the back there, those of us hanging at the greens. And so there's that. Are you in here? Really? I'm looking. FBI's most wanted. Number one. <laughs> All right, well, we are we're in Psalm 47. Pastor West, about uh, three months ago, left you at Psalm 46. And then last Sunday, I talked about, during the sermon, Psalm 46. So you should have 46 really in your head and heart. And now we're moving to Psalm 47. And so let me read Psalm 47. By the way, there are, uh, hand up, can I borrow this real quick, Bob? There are copies of Psalm 47 back there on the table for, that is a larger print in case you can't see smaller print and in case you forgot your Bible. They're right back there. Cindy Sandelman is right there at them. So anybody needs one, way better. All right, CJ wants one. Steve wants one. Wade wants one. D wants one. You kind of look like a mama, a mama duck, and all those little ducklings come all behind you. All right, everybody situated. All right. Yeah, I just put those back on the table back there. All right, so Psalm 47. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For, for the Lord, Yahweh, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. Oh, I missed the Selah there. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. There you go. God has gone up with the shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. He sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Selah. 
Was there a say law there? I thought there was a second say law. Nope, just one. Okay. So, um, Psalm 47. Anybody see anything that picks up as you look at the psalm? Things that catch your attention? Uh, repeats, repetitions? Lots of praises, lots of singing, lots of noise, okay? Huh? Shouting? Ooh, yeah, God subdues. Very good. The reason why I ask that question is because that's really part of Bible study, just normal Bible study. Those of you who've been in like uh, the women's Bible study in the Zoom class or you've been here, that's one of the things you probably normally have is the instructor will say, you know, what are some things that you notice said or that are emphasized or said more than once, maybe in different ways, but it's said the same thing over and over again. So it's just a normal, basic um, thing you do in Bible study, you look for repeats, especially like in the Psalms, because it really helps, okay? So that's why we ask that. Why I ask that. Yes, sovereign. Yes. And so that brought us to my title, Your God Reigns. Unfortunately for you, that's my sermon this morning too. So, I didn't plan any of this out. It's just where we're at. But this has, a lot of these things connect with last week's Psalm 46 and a lot of this will connect with the sermon this morning too. So, but your God reigns, I think is a good way to summarize as a title, summarize the psalm. So here's the, the way I'm breaking it out. You can see it's in three paragraphs and so verses 1 through 4, subdues and selects, songs and shouts, verses 5 through 7, and sits as sovereign, verses 8 through 9. You can't miss as you read through the psalm the rulership of God and His sovereignty. So, but all three of these psalms, Psalm 46, 47, and 48, which we'll look at next week, appear to be related to a situation and a set of conditions that looks like an incident in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Actually, it's be 2 Kings. Does anybody remember the story in 2 Kings 18 and 19? Sennacherib, Hezekiah, Jerusalem. I'm just giving you some hints. Anybody have that memorized? It should be 2 Kings, sorry. Alright, so what's your, what's your remem- remembrance of uh, the story? What went on in the story? What happens? Laying siege to Jerusalem. He's also laying siege to another city, Lachish, further up as well. Were you going to say something, Derek? Yeah, they're blaspheming God. Remember, what is Sinatra sends his uh, right-hand man, his spokesman, the Rabshaka. I love that term, the Rabshaka. That's what I'm going to just put on my cards from now on. The Rabshaka, Mike Philibert, right? He's the spokesman for the king. Okay, and he comes, and do you remember, how does he, what does the Rabshaka say in the name of the king? Yeah, don't trust Hezekiah, number one. Yes. Right. So, right, don't trust Hezekiah. And then don't trust the God he wants you to trust in, Yahweh, because he can't deliver you because, as Steve just pointed out, no God has delivered their city from my hand or my father's hand. Now, that's a very subtle statement, at least the way we listen to it, but it's a very pronounced statement in that day. Sinatra is saying he is the great God. If no God can stand against him, that means what? He's the great God. Okay? It's not just that he's human, he's superhuman. Okay? He's, he's divine in some way. 
And so remember, that's the story. And then, so there's Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah? Uh, hears all that and he goes to the prophet uh, the prophet is Holda uh, Holda I think her name was Holda and says you know what are we gonna do or whoever the gal was and what are we gonna do and and the Lord says I'm gonna deliver you and then Sinatra sends a letter you remember the letter no you don't remember the letter so the second message he sends to Hezekiah is a letter it's a handwritten letter and it says all the same stuff and what does Hezekiah do with that scroll of the letter? Anybody remember? He goes to the temple and he lays it out, rolls it out before the Lord. And he says, if you read through his prayer, he says, you know, Sennacherib is right. No God has withstood him because they ain't no God. Right? He didn't say ain't, but you know. He says, look at what he wrote. Rise up and you're our defense. Show that you are Yahweh, that you are the great God. And that's where he ends the prayer. And the Lord says, it'll be done. In fact, um, it'll be a surprise how I do it. And it was done quick. And you remember what the outcome was? 185,000 of his troops died. Now, if he had 2 million people, that's still a huge number of people. Right? I mean, they, that's a lot of dead bodies all of a sudden. And it was in an instant. Okay? And then so Sinatra packs up and takes off and Hezekiah is delivered, and Jerusalem is delivered. So that's kind of the background story, I think, and there are several other uh, scholars that say the same thing, but it looks like that whole story is what lies behind Psalm 46, 47, and 48. Psalm 46 would be as Sennacherib is outside the gates taunting Yahweh. Psalm 47 is either after the first promise that God gives Okay, that prepares uh, Hezekiah that that uh, that uh, was going to be defeated at some point, or it's right after Sennacherib was defeated, one of the two. And then the Psalm 48 looks like it's after Sennacherib has left the country, and Hezekiah and Jerusalem are beginning to recover. Okay, does that make sense? Hopefully that'll help you as you read Psalm 46, 47, and 48. If that's not the historical moment, it's something like that. Does that? Okay, great. So, here's the deal. Psalm 46 is during the siege. Psalm 47 is after God's promises and uh, maybe his, the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment. And then Psalm 48 is sometime shortly following Sinatra's defeat and retreat. And so notice how the psalm begins. The psalm begins in the inscription at the very beginning. Begins how? How does it go? It's to whom? The choir master... And it's written by, or it's uh, the originating source is Sons of Korah. So remember the Sons of Korah. The Sons of Korah have a family history that leaves a black mark on their name. It's number 16. When Korah and Dathan and Abiram all revolt against Moses and the ground swallows up a bunch of them and all that. That leaves a, bad, a black mark on their his, family history name. And so it's, it's always, to me, it's encouraging that when you see of the sons of Korah in the Psalms, that they as a family group shifted gears and went in the right direction. So there was a family repentance, if you want to call it that, and moving in the right direction. But even still, Korah is a, a, um, is a standard of, of uh, waywardness. And so in Jude 11, Woe to them, for they, wa have, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake 
of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And so every time you remember that and then you see them actually writing the, some of the Psalms that should lift your hearts, there's hope for everyone, right? Here they are leading the way forward in faithful worship. So that's in Psalm 47. Subdues and selects, verses 1 through 4. It's a very noisy psalm, so go through the psalm very quickly and pick out all the loud words. You can tell that Korah did not expect the church to be Presbyterian, maybe. Huh? Clap, shout, songs, sing. What are the loud words? Sound of a trumpet. If you've ever listened to West play, you know that's loud and noisy. Sing praises. Okay. Very good. Yeah, shout and all that. Yeah, all of that. Very good. So look at verses 1 through 4 then and ask yourself, why is this psalm so noisy? Verses 1 through 4. Why is this psalm so noisy? Yeah, join praise about what specifically? What God has done. Yeah. His reign, the fact that He reigns. Okay, so there's verse 2, the fact that He reigns. The Lord, Yahweh, the Most High, is to be feared, great King over all the earth. And then, He subdued, right, subdued those who were His enemies and, and His people's enemies, right? But I, yeah. Yes. He's actually proven himself not powerless against the Sinatribs of the world, no matter how arrogant they may be. Yeah, very good. So there's, there's a historical and uh, actual events that have happened that are the backbone or the impetus behind the noisiness in this, in this worship or in the psalm. So if the setting was God's promise to defeat Sinatrib, then discuss why the noisiness is even more fitting. Right. Okay. Put yourself in that situation. If that's the situation, just put yourself in that situation for a moment. You're stuck inside of Jerusalem. Guess what? There's no way to do. You can't get out. You're a prisoner. Guess what happens to your food supply and your water supply, anyone? Yes, it goes down. I mean, what's going on in Gaza, for example? I'm not siding with against them or whatever, but it's just whatever's going on there. As the food supply declines under a siege... There's real desperation. Here's, here's God's people in Jerusalem. There's real desperation. Okay? What else? Think about what else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because this victory is even more than just a football game, all right? Just a little bit more than OSU beating OU. Or, I mean, whatever it was. I, you know, whatever, right? This is... This is Think about the guy that just was released from prison, what, 47 years he was in prison? Right now he's got stage four cancer. Um, but, I mean, the celebration from him, he was free, right? So here's a whole group of God's people 
surrounded by Sennacherib and they are overpowered. It's an impossible situation. They have no military might to be able to throw off Sennacherib. And suddenly, Sennacherib, according to God's promise, Sennacherib is defeated and uh, decimated. And they can now get out and they can now get food and get water and all those other things. I realize Hezekiah built a tunnel under the city, but, but they're free finally. Right? So being set free. So do you, I mean, do you get, that's what I'm asking in the question. Is you put yourself in that situation and then you realize what it's about and you realize why there's such celebration. Does it make sense? Okay. So here's how Sennacherib described himself around the time of 2 Kings 18 and 19. He did, this, this statement is on a uh, placard of some kind, some Assyrian placard that the archaeologists have found. There's a couple of these uh, that he's, where he's actually said this. And so Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters of the world. So as you think about his boastful statement of how powerful and strong he is, how might verse 2 be a thumb in Sennacherib's eye? Look at verse 2. For Yahweh, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if the Lord, through the inspired psalmist, is taunting Assyria, uh, the king of Assyria. You called yourself the great king, the most high? Ha! I, I think the scripture says that God does laugh at people in hev from heaven, right? Those who are opposed to him. Ha! That's what he did. Verse 2. Ha! Right? That's verse 2. Ha! No, no, I'm sorry. Ha! And then so then in verse 3 and 4, he selects and he subdues. Now, depend, does, anybody, does anybody have anything else in here other than the English Standard Version? What translation do you have? New American Standard, anybody else? So verse 3 and 4, are, I'm sorry, New King James. Verse 3 and 4, are those in the past tense or are those present tense or future tense? So it says he subdues, okay, present tense. So verse 3 and 4, Randy. Future tense. The Hebrew is uh, just plastic enough right there in those verb tenses that it can be translated rightly all three different ways. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. It's really one of the fun things about Hebrew. And, um, but it's interesting because it, it leaves you with a question mark. Well, has all this already happened? Or is this be, has this just been promised and it's about to happen? Or it's not even been promised, or it's been promised and that's all it is, just promised at this point. You see what I'm saying? And so uh, it's really intriguing to see how that, they play that out in the translations. But, um, but it's all about selects and subdues, or will select and he, does, he has selected, but he will subdue um, the nations under our feet, etc. So as you look at it, he subdued people under us and nations under our feet. If, if, if 2 Kings 18 and 19 is the backstory, how did he subdue peoples under God's people 
and put them under his under their feet. Just defeated their army, right? And they were now set free, right? So just simply just release them, okay? Instead of them destroying them, God destroyed them, not God's people, right? Okay? And then... Um, Talks about choosing our, he chooses our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Uh, there are other places in scripture, uh, such as Amos 6 8, the pride of Jacob is really the land. It's the land promise. It's going back to the promise given to Abraham. This land is our heritage that he gave us. It's, it's what he selected for us. Okay? And so, uh, just simply rehearsing God's past promises and how they still fit into the present as well. Does that make sense? Okay, any questions on verses 1 through 4 or other observations? It very well could be Ha'eretz is the Hebrew, and that's usually for the land itself, the specific region. But the way he puts it, the God Most High, and what Sinatra was saying, it's probably very clearly, there's that aspect, but probably very clear, clearly saying, no, you're not the king of the universe, of the four corners. Okay? Yes, Fred. which is, has lots of aspects to it. So I love the way the Shorter Catechism puts it. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. We're all insurrectionists at heart, right? He subdues us. First thing, he subdues us to himself. Then he rules and defends us. And he restrains and he conquers all of his and our enemies. I think that's a great way to put it, Fred, is that this is... He's our God, and He doesn't have to be appeased. He's actually doing things for us, in us, and on our behalf. Right? Great way to put it. Anybody else? Verses 1 through 4. All right, verses uh, 5 through 7 songs and shouts. It's noisy again. Bum, 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 bum. Lots of singing. So, as you take in these verses, what might be behind them as you're. Sometimes when I put this together, I ask the same question ten times. I don't know. But there is something actually behind it. I mean, there's a historical event, but there's also a reason in verses 5 through 7 for all the noisiness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Ah, hold that thought. That's Cindy Walton. You got to get up early in the morning to get past her. But hold that thought. Yeah, it does sound like a processional. 
But notice verse 7 is the reasoning. For. What, for what reason? For God is king of all the earth. Here's the reason, the reason for the noisiness, okay? Um, and so that's really the heart uh, of verses 5 through 7. How does, that, how does that relate then to verse 2? Start seeing repeated themes through the Psalms here. How does, how does that relate to verse 2? He's king of all the earth. Yes, worthy of being revered that way as the Most High, as the King of all the earth. Okay? And he's to be feared, right? And so notice, uh, gone up, notice the language. So Cindy hit on something here. Gone up with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet. In the Hebrew, those are identical words, identical statements with another historical moment. And here's the historical moment. It's back in 2 Samuel 6, verse 15, as David is leading in a procession. Good job, Cindy. The Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Okay? And it says, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of Yahweh with shouting. It's exactly the same in the Hebrew here. We've gone up with a shout. With shouting and with the sound of the horn. It's the same exactly uh, as it is in the Hebrew here with the sound of a trumpet. It's a shofar. That's the trumpet, the horn. Okay? So it's almost identical, it's identical language for when the ark was coming up, being processed up into the temple, or uh, not temple, but up into Jerusalem. Okay? So it is a processional in a sense. Uh, uh, Lee? Ooh! Yeah. Yeah, sound of the trumpets. Yes, yes. I won't tell you what was in my head. As soon as you said March Around Jericho, I had that kid's song in my head. You know, March, 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 March Around Jericho. Yes, okay. But yeah, so it is that processional aspect, right? So there's a sense of this celebration, but the intention is taking you somewhere. It's taking you up to the throne of the great king of all the earth. And they're celebrating the fact that here they are, are being or have been rescued from Sennacherib, and this is the way they're going. Um, any, any thoughts or anything else you want to add to verses 5 through 7? Yeah. It's rousing. It's rousing. I love going. To, one of the reasons I love going to presbytery is because we worship together at the beginning of presbytery, and you got seventy elders and whoever else is there, men and women, and whoever else is around, all together and just singing together. And I get to be in the congregation and sing with everybody. It's just delightful, you know. So, very good. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the end of verse 7. So it says, sing praises with a mask skill is what it is in the Hebrew. And so it's, um, 
uh, it's translated variously, but the idea is that there's some forethought into the song itself, that it's, uh, but it's not just, it's also, um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Yes, or maybe a well-orchestrated song. It could be translated that way, right? Which is another problem, <laughs> right? Yeah, it fits, right, it does fit the occasion. And so, yeah, so, so it just kind of leads you to realize there's a place for spontaneity. Don't get me wrong. There is a proper place for spontaneity. I mean, if you come out of the doctor's office today or tomorrow and the doctor says the cancer is in remission right this minute and you don't get spontaneous, something wrong with you, right? Yes. There's a place for that spontaneity, but there's also a huge place for actually thinking through what you are saying in praise even in prayer, there's, there, written, writing out your prayers ahead of time, writing out, you know, having written songs that you sing together that you know. This is my problem with new songs every week in a church, right? Because you don't know what in the world those, that song is about. But after years of actually wearing, your, wearing ruts into some of those hymns, you know what they are. And then when you sing them, it's like, that's my soul singing. You know what I'm saying? There's a real valuable place in that. Sorry, that was free. It was off the script. So. so let's go on then to the last two verses, verses 8 and 9, which is a little bit of a surprise, actually. So the statements in verse 8, and then the last statement, uh, the last line of verse 9, they wrap the section up in kind of a war, in a warm embrace. That's how I want to put it. God reigns over the nations. He sits on His holy throne. And the last line in uh, verse 9, For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Okay? It just wraps up this last part, which tells you as you look at it, and you see how often this is repeated, you realize this whole psalm is about God, your God reigns. That's what the psalm is all about. Okay? And so it just keeps coming back. But then those last two verses... Um, that's the hug, if you want to call it that. Two arms, verse 8 and the last part of verse 9. So he reigns, he sits on his holy throne, he's highly exalted, are all very important announcements. Why would they be so important? He reigns, he sits on his holy throne, he's highly exalted. Why would those be really important? It is a great security. God does reign. He is exalted. Okay? Oh, yeah. Right. It goes back to the first part of verse 9, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. But good question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Bob's talking about it looks like it's a, almost a gathering of leaders, but then if you look at verse 8, we're not here yet, but I'm just giving you a hint. When you get to verse 8, there's the surprise. Here's the people who are gathered. Very interesting. Okay, so God is highly exalted, sits on His throne, He reigns. It's an important announcement. It goes along with what we're going to read this morning in worship from Isaiah 57, verse, or 52, verses 7 through 10 as the herald of the good news comes from a, from a huge battle, and he comes 
bringing peace, uh, 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 yeah, bringing peace and happiness, he says the words that he preaches and proclaims and heralds are, your God reigns. And that's the whole muscle of all of Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 10. And that's what you have going on here. It's, it's a very powerful statement. He reigns. Okay? And, and that's huge. Sinatrib said, no, he doesn't. And God said, huh. Right? Yeah. Right. And, and in our hearts, we say, no, you don't. And God says, huh. And in our country, we have people that say, no, he doesn't. And God says, huh. Our God reigns. That means something. Right? We throw it out there like it's just candy at a, at a parade. Just tossing it out. It doesn't mean anything to us very often, but it means something. And it means something very muscular. It means something very substantial. Our God reigns. Okay? So what happens when God is exalted? You won't see it necessarily. You do see some of it here in the psalm, but we want to go to some other places very quickly. What happens when God is exalted? Our focus becomes right because we're looking in the right direction, right? Nations can be drawn to Him. Already given way or a segue to verse 8 in just a minute. Yeah, it does lead to praise. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so there are some benefits to God being exalted. Okay, so we're going to look at two passages very, very quickly. So uh, you can hold this and you can flip over to Isaiah 30 and verse 18, for example. Look at what comes with God being exalted. Can somebody read Isaiah 30, verse 18? Who would do that? Why does he exalt himself? To show mercy. Oh, so can you hold on to Isaiah. We're going to another place. Look at chapter 33, verses 5 and 6. So somebody read verse 5 and 6. Who'll do that? Just jump in. Go for it. So notice what comes with the Lord being exalted or exalting Himself there. The Lord is exalted, He dwells on high. What comes with that? Wisdom, knowledge, salvation, steadiness. Yeah, yeah. Justice and righteousness. I love the stability of your times. When He's exalted, you're stable people, right? So... Therefore, when God is exalted, and think about Psalm 47, when God is exalted, graciousness, mercy, blessing, justice and righteousness, stability, abundance of salvation, abundance of wisdom, and abundance of knowledge flow lavishly. You want, every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy 
name. You're saying, I want you to be exalted because this is our only hope. Because when you're exalted, then flow out graciousness and mercy and blessing and justice and righteousness and stability and all these other things. Right? That's what you're praying for. Right? So, but then something else happens in verse 9 as a result of God being exalted, which fits in with the outflow of His graciousness and so forth. And it's, uh, it's the last part of, it's the first part of verse 9. We've already started hinting on it. The princes of the peoples, plural, almost always, if you have a good translation, sometimes the King James Version does a really good job with this, but every so often it gets it wrong. Sometimes some of the other translations get it wrong. But when it says peoples, it's goyim. It's the Gentiles. It's the non-Israelites. Listen, the princes of the people. So Bob was right. It's the leaders. But surprise, surprise, it's the leaders of non-covenant members. The peoples, the princes of the peoples gather as, as what? The people of the God of Abraham. Which is the covenant people. Outsiders becoming insiders because God is exalted and is one. That's pretty big news, I think. Right? And so you think about Genesis 22. It's what God promised Abraham. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's why verse 9 says the God of Abraham will be like the peoples as the, peoples of the, the people of the, God of, of the God of Abraham. That's what God promised Abraham. So the writers, Korah, is seeing this moment of their deliverance from Sennacherib as a part of God's world rescue operation that he promised Abraham and has been working out ever since. So Paul will say in Galatians 3, 26-29, that um, we're, we're, uh, we're, um, uh, we're all in Christ by faith and we've been baptized into Christ and put on Christ and there's therefore no Jew or Gentile, male or female, etc., for we are all the descendants of Abraham. We're the offspring of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Paul is drawing from bigger sections of Scripture from Genesis 22 through Psalm 47 when he makes that statement. Right? And so you have to remember, oh, this is always God's plan for all the peoples to be drawn in as the people of the God of Abraham. Does that make sense? Great. Wonderful. But, it, but then you get to Ephesians 2. So I'll just flip over real quick to Ephesians 2. Notice what happens. So we become, Jews and Gentiles, become, are gathered together as the people of the God of Abraham. And notice who's the centerpiece of this. Therefore remember that, so I'm at verse 11, Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by, that, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by the hand, my hands. Remember that you were at one time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but 
Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I hope verse 9 of Psalm 47 is echoing in your head because that's what's going on right here. For He Himself is our peace. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both, it's talking about Jews and Gentiles, made us both um, one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man, one kainos anthropos, one new human race, one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now you're gathered as the people of the God of Abraham. You're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together in a dwelling place by God, um, uh, for God by the Spirit. So notice that verse 9 in chapter 47, that the peoples are gathered as the people of the God of Abraham has huge implications and is pointing to uh, in the moment is saying this is like what's going to happen in the future when somebody comes, right? When the Messiah comes. And notice what it is. It's drawing in outsiders and making them insiders all around the exalted God. The Lord is exalted and so he draws all people. Does anybody remember somebody you know, maybe, who said something about, and I, when I am lifted up, will what? Draw all people to myself. Right? It's a huge statement. And notice it's drawing us together to the exalted God. Right? So, something I wrote recently in a letter there's a growing to uh, trend towards separation and also isolation in our country. I refer to some articles. This is my letter this last week. One of the immediate consequences of the fall, Genesis 3, is just this. Division and loneliness, verse Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And when you fast forward to the New Testament, you find it is a major problem that the gospel of Jesus breaks into and brings a remedy to. When Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, he mentions the seclusion and polarization of the day, how Jews and Gentiles were ripped apart and stood opposed to each other, sometimes violently, and then comes the gospel, where, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, etc. He is our peace. He's taken the two and made them one new man, one new human race, etc. And so our Lord Jesus comes and reverses Genesis 3, Good Presbyterians, we say hallelujah because we believe that. And we often forget this. He reverses Genesis 4, too. The division and isolation, the Cain and Abelism in our own hearts. He reverses 
Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 in himself, and this has consequences for us, is that it has remedial consequences, life-giving consequences, communal consequences. Where the trend of worldliness is to divide and isolate, Jesus draws us, draws his people to himself together. He puts us on God's good side together, justification. He puts us on God's good side together. He cleans us up and he builds us up together. When you read Psalm 47, you see, oh, the peoples of the earth, the princes of the peoples are coming as the people of the God of Abraham. And so all their shields belong to him, right? This is allegiance language. And so they're all drawn to him because he's exalted. Does that make sense? I think that's big news. What's a weapon? It can be. I don't know. It could be. It just says the shields of the earth. Right? Especially if you're Scottish or British, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, shields, you know, I wasn't being sarcastic. Shields can be used as weapons. So, yes, in a sense, you're right. But they're also defensive. But you can, anything can be weaponized. Just come to my self-defense class sometime, and I will show you how even water bottles can be weaponized, right? And so, Moose agrees with that, too. Anything. Stiletto heels. That was your, my favorite story you told one time. All right, so the shields of the earth. So all of this is drawing to the fact that God is exalted. When God is exalted, it does something. It begins to reverse Genesis 3 and 4. And you see it clearly when you come to Jesus. God exalted. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So then, Psalm 47, we have the shape of our Lord Jesus. You cannot miss Christ, but maybe you can, so let me help you. So think about God being exalted and sitting and all of that, and look at the Hebrews chapter 10. We often read Hebrews 10 in one specific way, but it actually has a double aspect to it. So Hebrews 10... Verse 11, the context is the high priest is a very busy guy because there was lots of sacrifices all the time and he was busy, 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 busy. But this new great high priest is not busy. So there's that aspect. So verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly all the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Now that language, right hand of God, you already would think of the ascension, which means Jesus is king. Yes, so notice the next part. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time when until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He is a priest and a king. So when you read Hebrews 10, you should be thinking priest and king simultaneously. He is a royal priest or a, uh, a priestly king. And so then, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. So you take that and you go back to Psalm 47 and you go, oh, God is exalted as he sits enthroned. He's not worried. He's defeated his enemies. 
He succeeded. He's sitting there, ruling. Huh. You want to do what? Huh. You think you're what? Huh. Right? So there's that aspect. He's sitting there, and what is Jesus pictured as doing after his sacrifice? As he has defeated death and our sin and the devil and his own actions, what is he pictured as doing? Sitting. Waiting for that day in, in history for us, our experience of it, when all of his enemies are defeated and made his footstool. And so until then, guess what Jesus is doing partly sometimes in heaven as he sits? Huh! He does. People rail all the time. Huh! He is exalted. And the good news is, is that as God is exalted, Jesus is exalted, flows out graciousness, mercy, stability, righteousness, justice, and all those other aspects we just looked at a minute ago. Psalm 47 is a great psalm, and it is a gospel psalm. It is very much about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people. So any questions or anything up to this point? Clarifications on you make? Yes. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Let the whole earth be filled with your mercy. Yeah. Yes. Psalm 60, I love Psalm 67. So, take, taking it home. So, based on Psalm 47, God's reign, God's rescue, God's turning enemies into the people of the God of Abraham should evoke from us what? Huh? Praise. Yeah, shouting, clapping. Yeah, and rest. Internal rest. But there's a, satis a satisfaction. One of the things I love about John Piper is just the fact that he keeps coming back to, you know, it's okay for us to be happy with God and be satisfied. Our problem is that we're very unsatisfied people because we're people, right? But I love that. It's a great reminder, by the way. I love John Piper. Yeah, it should, it should evoke all those things from us. And we're getting ready to walk into the assembly to worship God. I hope this whole psalm lingers in the back of your head and sits in your heart. There's a reason why we sing praises. Now, there's reasons why we sing laments and um, uh, grieving kinds of songs. That, those are very appropriate. And there's also an appropriateness to being enthusiastic about who God is. Right? Okay. So also, since God is exalted, and from His exaltation, graciousness, mercy, blessing, justice, and righteousness, stability, abundance of salvation, abundance of wisdom, abundance of knowledge flow lavishly, how should we respond? Grateful, thankful. I heard somebody over here. In kind. Yeah, yeah, right. We become part of Him which is the promise to Abraham. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We're part of that, as God is exalted, we're part of that extension of graciousness, mercy, and all those things. Yeah. But what should you be wanting? Here's another part of the response. What should you be wanting? If this is where, if this is what comes, much of what comes from God being exalted, what is something you should want? Him to be exalted! And to exalt Him! 
And then lastly, in a world that is trending toward separation and isolation, then because of Jesus, our peace, what should become our trend? Yeah. Drawn together because of Jesus, who is our peace, right? And coming as the peoples of the, the people of the, of the God of Abraham, right? Because it's, oh, it's, you've brought us in. And so wanting to be together, right? Do what? Right, right. Yep. Yeah, it's a big deal. I remember, so when we were in Midland, Cindy can bear witness to this, and Jerry too, but we, they had a communion once a month, and we worked, it took about three years, but just made a case and slowly moved, and we went to communion weekly. Well, I had two people that were opposed to it. One was uh, the oldest member of the congregation, the other one was somebody else, it doesn't matter. Um, and they, they opposed it for theological reasons. Well, we finally did it. About a year later, our oldest member came and she said, she told me the real reason why she opposed it because it would add to the service. <laughs> and it didn't. So that was funny. The second thing is, is she, she and the other person who opposed it said, you know, I thought it was going to be a funeral dirge. Because unfortunately, in Presbyterian circles, we have made, and I, could, I, I have lots of experience here, especially in the Deep South, where communion is a funeral service almost, Right? And so there's a fitting place. We're going to be singing today during communion. We don't do this every Sunday, but we do it on the first Sunday of every month. The reason why, Psalm 47. It's a very fitting time. Your Lord has won the victory. He is highly exalted. Sing and shout. Clap. Give thanks for His great victory. Yeah, don't, except for Yvonne. Don't let Yvonne clap. Yeah, yeah. Not the same. Sure. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Okay. It's almost time for us to end. Actually, it is time for us to end. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, yes. How wonderful. Our God reigns. You are exalted, and in your exaltation, flow out all of this graciousness, mercy, stability, righteousness, wisdom, and knowledge, and all of this, Lord. We want all the world to know that you are exalted so that they will turn to you and receive so much from you, and, and you will be adored, and you will be honored as you deserve, Lord. We pray for that. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, in whom, who is our great kingly high priest, who after he defeated our greatest, many of our greatest enemies in his cross and his death and resurrection is now set down at your right hand. And sometimes I do imagine when he hears people talking, he does say a few times, huh, because he's won and he's winning and they won't. 
And so for those who are not winning, those who have never bowed the knee to Jesus, in our families, in our neighborhoods, people that we have heavy on our hearts, they would come now, come soon, and fall before you, Jesus, and say, Jesus is Lord, and I am so glad. Prepare our hearts now, Lord, as we get ready to enter the great assembly to worship and adore you, for you are a great God, the great King above all gods. In Jesus' name, amen.